1: We are broadcasting from the Commonwealth Financial Network Summit for Women Advisors here in Nashville, Tennessee. Last night, uh, many people were watching the next 10 presidential Democratic candidates uh, debate each other in Florida. There was a very different tone uh, in this debate. A lot of policies discussed. Take a listen to some snippets from the event.
2: And we have got to pass a Medicare for All single payer system. We have to make sure we understand that to return dignity to the middle class, they have to have insurance that is covered and they can afford it.
3: Everybody who says Medicare for All, every person in politics who allows that phrase to escape their lips, has a responsibility to explain how you're actually supposed to get from here to there.
2: Yes, they will pay more in
4: taxes, but less in health care for what they get.
1: There was that question when the Republicans and Donald Trump passed a tax bill that benefits the top 1% and
0: the biggest corporations in this country.
2: Donald Trump has put us in a horrible situation. We do have enormous income inequality. And the one thing I agree on is we can make massive cuts in the $1.6 trillion in tax loopholes out there. And I would be going about eliminating Donald Trump's tax cuts for the wealthy.
1: We've been listening to the voices of former Vice President Joe Biden, Senators Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris, among others in that debate. Joining us now to unpack what we heard is Doug High, Republican strategist and former RNC communications director. Doug, so glad that you could join us. My main question is, who are the Republicans? Who is Donald Trump most scared of uh, coming out of these two nights of the Democratic candidate debates?
2: Well, there's a there's a there's a discussion inside the Trump campaign of what they fear the most. Is it somebody like a Joe Biden who has the experience and also can win some of these states that Trump flipped, like a Pennsylvania, or is it a change agent, somebody who represents something completely different? Uh, I think last night we saw that Kamala Harris uh, has has the ability to stand toe-to-toe with just about anybody. That should certainly send uh, some some worry into the Trump camp. But also, one thing I think, while it was a big, big night for Kamala Harris, it was a very good night for Pete Dead edge uh, One thing I did see that uh, uh, over last night and, and the night before is Democrats were almost arguing with each other over who could lurch further to the left. Um, and that is a, a, a ground that Republicans want to campaign on. Uh, that is exactly the contrast that the Trump campaign would love to campaign on, regardless of who that nominee is. And that's something Democrats need to be careful of.
0: So, Doug, that's exactly where I wanted to go. Um, you know, my question, I guess, is, you know, I think at these primary, at these early debates, um, you know, we'll probably see a lot of candidates try to, you know, kind of push to the left. But when push comes to shove, when we get to the general election, do you expect the Democrats to put up a centrist or maybe something a little bit more left of that?
2: Well, I think at this point we defined centrist. And this is true to some extent with Republicans as well. We defined centrist as to who sounds reasonable much less what the policies are. So Pete edges I would say his policies are uniformly in line with where Democrats are. But he doesn't talk like a typical politician. He sounds like somebody from Indiana. He sounds like somebody who's more of a centrist. That's that's a great attribute to have, but the policies that every Democrat last night, uh basically all of them and, and the night before, uh lined up on were all almost exactly in accordance with each other. And what we see, healthcare being one good example Is Democrats, where it was a real asset to them in 2018 in the election, have moved very far from where they were on Election Day 2018, which wasn't that long ago. And if that continues, it sets the Democrat up, uh, whomever that may be, uh, for a contrast that the Trump campaign would love to have.
1: You know, Doug, I'm actually surprised to hear you saying that this was a competition to just move the furthest to the left, because I actually was surprised that it was not more that way. Uh, and I was surprised that a number of candidates, uh, potential candidates, came out and said, you know what, we don't think that a single payer health care system where you can't have your own insurance will work. And that's not what it's looked like uh, in places like Canada or in Europe. And, you know, trying to make an argument for a more sustainable type of program. So what exactly are you pointing to that was more left-leaning than you thought, uh, and more of a consensus throughout?
2: Well, on on health care, certainly there was some talk of whether or not people would be able to, to keep their insurance plan. Obviously, if you like your plan, you can keep it with something Obama ran on and then couldn't deliver on. There was some dissension there, but they have moved further to the left there. Also, immigration, where every hand went up on decriminalizing the border. That is a fight that Donald Trump wants to have, uh, regardless of what's going on at the border right now. And I would say, you know, as a Republican, it's a crisis and it's terrible. The conditions that we're seeing for kids and what's happening with families is terrible. Politically, this is a fight that's a very comfortable one for Donald Trump to have uh, when every Democrat raised their hand and said, we want to decriminalize crossing the border. That's the fight Donald Trump won.
0: So, Doug, it's, it's interesting. Do you expect coming out of this huge field of Democratic uh, candidates, uh, you know, a Bill Clinton type of candidate, a Barack Obama to, you know, to come out of nowhere and really take the lead. Do you think there's possibility of that happening this year? We have so many to choose from.
2: Well, I think what we'll see is, is a winnowing and the, the threshold for the next debate will be higher. So we're uh, fortunately not going to see, you know, a Marianne Williamson or an Andrew Yang in the next debate, most likely. So we'll get more substance from biden from warren who had a good night two nights ago i think the problem for elizabeth warren was she was the first night not the second night and has kind of been lost in the conversation clearly kamala harris is a star that shouldn't have surprised anyone and she'll do well in further debates and again i wouldn't forget cory booker and pete brudegge who don't talk typically like politicians do when uh, when pete talks like a midwesterner and a a mayor somebody who does things or in his case accepts responsibility for when he wasn't able to do something, which politicians really don't do very often. Or when Cory Booker talks about living in a community of color, a lot of politicians don't know that world and certainly don't talk about it. That gives them an opportunity to communicate in a very different way.
1: So, uh, Doug, since you are a Republican strategist and a former RNC communications director, I'm wondering whether there has been less or more support among Republicans recently for President Trump heading into this 2020 election cycle uh, based on the tariffs and some of the trade talk, because uh, tariffs have traditionally been not in the playbook of Republican economics.
2: Yeah, and I know from watching Bloomberg, tariffs are a major part of the conversation. And I'm going to be in Iowa in a few weeks, and I can't wait to hear on the ground what the conversation on tariffs is when I'm in Iowa. Clearly, it's having a negative impact. That is a very important state for Donald Trump. I don't think it will erode his base, uh, but certainly those who maybe were Obama voters in in Iowa in the past and then flipped for Trump, that's a place where where you're going to look and and see how are those voters looking at this now, where they like the fact that Donald Trump is taking a fight um, to China, for instance, Um, where other presidents haven't, but the effects that those are having uh, are are having real impacts on their day-to-day life. Being from North Carolina, I know I could have that same conversation about uh, sweet potatoes all day long.
1: (laughs) Doug High, thank you so (laughs) much uh, for being with us. We really appreciate your insights. Doug High is a Republican strategist, former RNC communications director director and sweet potato aficionado heading to Iowa to get the pulse on the ground, talking about the Democratic debates.
0: Joining us is Maria Considine-King. Maria is a Senior Vice President, Practice Management uh, at Commonwealth Financial Network. Maria, thank you so much for joining us. Just give us a sense of why this summit is important for the women advisors of Commonwealth.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, this month is a momentous month for Commonwealth. We're celebrating our 40th anniversary. And ever since we've been founded, we have had this vision, Joe Deitch has, has a vision, that this is a place where everyone can thrive. And that is what we have striven for, for all, the, all these years. And so in order to strive, people need to be able to have a community that is supportive of them, that allows them to sort of explore who they are, uh, understand what is what is possible for them, and help them to move forward. And for Women advisors at Commonwealth who are about 20% of the field, it's been hard for them to just know who their peer group is. When we go to our national conferences and other events, it's predominantly male. And so it's hard for them to just know who who those people are. So events like this allow them to literally set eyes on one another and recognize you are my peer, you are my colleague. And so it takes, it levels the field right out of the gate. Um, And then it also provides them with an opportunity to find their own voice, to find their commonalities, to to share how they can help one another, what has been successful for them. Um, not only for the women who are here today, but also to establish a community and a dialogue that attracts women to come to our community in the future. Um, and it's not just about women, really, right? This is about diversity overall. So hopefully by providing a community and creating a community that lifts up women, we are creating a community that lifts up everybody um, and is an attractive place for people to be. You
1: said about 20% of the field, I know the Commonwealth uh, works with almost 2,000 independent financial advisors. Yes. Uh, why is only 20% of that total female?
5: That's a great question. Uh, and it, it's it's a needle that hasn't moved a whole lot over the years. Um, and I think there are a few reasons for that. I think, you know, younger women coming up, I don't think they sort of see this industry. I, I don't think it's very visible to them. When they think about a career in finance, uh, they're often thinking about a career in investment banking uh, or something on Wall Street that, that conveys a lifestyle that might not be conducive to them having a family of their own, or a life of their own, or just whatever they want their life to be. Uh, so I, I think that we're not visible as an industry, so I think it's important for the women advisors who are here today to start making themselves more visible, and start getting out in their in their communities to, to show them what is possible within the wealth advisory field, um, and that it's a great field, and it's a great career for, for women to have and to explore. So I think we've got a visibility issue, um, cer- certainly. Um, and then I think on the independent side, I think young women sometimes aren't all that encouraged, to take risks. And so if you're going to be an independent advisor, you're going to be an entrepreneur, you're going to be a business owner, it's a lot of responsibility. It's a great commitment. Um, There's a lot of potential there. Uh, But I think some younger women may not feel fully supported in being able to take that step and take that leap. Um, So they they may tend to take more uh, employee advisor roles rather than be that Forward-facing uh, business owner and entrepreneur, so we have a lot of work to do as as a as a community and certainly as a field uh, to attract younger women into our industry absolutely. So, so when
0: a, a woman comes to you and wants to set up a practice, are there yeah. are there specific, or is this some specific advice you give to a woman uh, setting up a practice that maybe is a little bit unique?
5: I was intrigued to hear that question um, because. I think you know business principles are business principles. and yep. I think they're they're the same, whether it's it's a man or a woman. it do, doesn't doesn't matter. What I think is different is is the adoption and the implementation rate between men and women. And this is entirely my perspective. So you mm-hmm. might talk to a colleague who disagrees, but uh, when I work with women advisors, they tend to implement. Like when we have a consulting engagement with them, we come up with their strategies and their tactics, they they implement and they report back and they're telling me what their successes are and what their challenges are. With men, they, they, they may do that, um, but they may hold back a bit and may sort of, vetted against a number of other ideas and look look for other information. And so there there, there seems to be a faster adoption rate among women for basic business principles and mm-hmm. establishing their practice in an effective way.
1: So when it comes to the business opportunity for women, uh, I've seen some statistics around the amount of wealth that women are actually accumulating mm-hmm. and are in a position of power over money in a way uh, that they really haven't been historically on a yes. proportional basis, uh, especially as they live longer. And so I'm trying to figure out whether women... Uh, tend to work with female financial advisors more often than men. In other words, is this a sort of, uh, you know, select group Mm. that has a specific pitch Mm -hmm. right now at a time of growing financial uh, prowess among women?
5: I think they certainly do have that have that advantage uh, to leverage, um, and they, they certainly can, and they, and many of them are. I think that women who are new to wealth or have accumulated a lot of wealth, many of them talk of feeling more comfortable talking with a woman about their financial cir- circumstance. And part of that is sort of the, the, the history of, of a bit of gender bias that, that has happened between advisors and clients, where advisors don't always recognize the woman as a decision maker, and they tend to direct their information and questions to the man. And the relationship. And so I do think women advisors have um, a great advantage in being able to attract women advisors and women, or excuse me, women clients of wealth. Um, and I, I believe and, and my impression is that that is happening with, with greater and greater frequency. Yes.
1: Thank you so much for being with us and for Thank having for us having here. Me. Maria Considine-King, Senior Vice President of Practice Management at Commonwealth Financial Network. Uh, she is the one who organized this, the uh, Commonwealth Financial Networks, ah. uh Summit for Women Advisors. Thanks for having us. It is the first <laughs> of you. its kind, and it it's is a really interesting area, this whole idea of how do you end up uh, diversifying fields that historically have been dominated by one group. How do you do that? What are the barriers? Something. It's a complicated question that's facing the entire financial world right now right financial services
0: in in general yeah. yeah it's been an issue yes
1: The big question of the day, will Presidents Xi Jinping of China and Donald Trump of the United States come to some sort of truce fire, at least, at the uh, G20 meetings after escalating rhetoric around imposing tariffs? Joining us now from Hong Kong, Steve Engel, TV correspondent for Bloomberg and in New York. My- McKee, international economics and policy correspondent for Bloomberg News. Uh, Thank you so much, both of you, for being with us. Steve, I want to start with you. Can you just sort of paint a scene, give us a sense of the mood on the ground there uh, at the G20 meetings?
6: Yeah, I am here in Osaka this morning, uh, uh, and we've been, you know, covering it uh, for the last couple of days, and we've all been just kind of previewing this uh, meeting between Xi Jinping and uh, Donald Trump that is going to happen. Uh, scheduled for twelve hours from right now so it's eleven thirty at night here in Osaka they're gonna plan to meet at eleven thirty in the morning and again we got mixed signals from the president uh, today he said on the one hand there's a good chance of doing something with China on trade tomorrow meaning Saturday at eleven thirty in the morning and they're working lunch Uh, but on the other hand he also said he hasn't promised to hold off on new tariffs so again there's so much speculation about uh, whether a truce can be reached, like we got uh, seven months ago in Buenos Aires, where they had a 90-day truce, and, of course, it all fell apart in May. Uh, but, uh, you know, he has a busy day tomorrow. In between Xi Jinping, or sandwiched uh, over Xi Jinping, is meetings with Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, and then after Xi Jinping, he has Turkish President Erdogan. He's got a lot on his plate tomorrow.
0: Uh, Michael McKee, uh, clearly these uh, international uh, trade issues are having a significant impact, uh, you know, over the last several months on the financial markets. What do you think the markets are and investors in general uh, are expecting coming out of Osaka this weekend?
4: They're expecting sort of, uh, as Stephen said, a Buenos Aires-like situation where the two sides agree to continue talking, at least get back to the bargaining table, kick the can down the road some. Donald Trump may say, we'll give you 90 days or whatever before we impose tariffs. That would be the good enough scenario. The better scenario is some sort of um, agreement that uh, they have moved closer. Nobody's expecting a full agreement out of this, Uh, the obviously terrible uh prospect is that they don't reach any kind of agreement to continue talking. And the president comes out and says, uh, I'm going to impose tariffs. He, he can't do it yet. They're not ready. They haven't finished the bureaucratic paperwork, but he could set a date sometime later in July uh, to do that.
1: So, Steve, uh, we're all focused on Xi Jinping and Donald Trump and their meeting, but other things are actually happening. G20 means G20, not G2. And I'm wondering what we have seen in terms of other meetings between President Trump, for example, and Russian President Vladimir Putin or uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel.
6: Yeah, that's right. I mean, he did meet with Vladimir Putin today. It was the first meeting since the Mueller report. Um, and he was prompted by, you know, a few reporters' questions uh, as the two of them sat there before their bilateral. Um, and and Trump asked Putin directly, after a reporter asked him, uh, is uh, he going to ask him whether to stop meddling in the future election in 2020? And uh, Donald Trump turned to Vladimir Putin and said, don't meddle in the election, please, And wagged his finger and said, don't meddle in the election. And it was more of a joking and a lighthearted, uh, response to what is obviously a very serious issue in the United States. But apparently, according to the White House, they also, in their bilateral discussion, did talk about Iran, did talk about Syria, Venezuela, and the Ukraine.
0: Michael, you know, we're, we're talking about tariffs here, and, and we've had a first round of tariffs. Uh, just give us a sense of, you know, if we have the second round of tariffs here, how impactful could that be on the economy? It would be much worse for the economy than we have seen so far. We were just
4: talking with Mary Daly, the president of the San Francisco Fed, yesterday, and she noted that the tariffs that have been imposed have had a modest impact on growth and inflation. But if you start adding in all of the consumer goods, which is the parts the president has left out of the tariffs so far on China, then you really start to affect consumer spending because people may want to hold off, especially if they think that this will be settled. Uh, Why buy an expensive good today if you think the price will go down tomorrow? And we're at the end of a uh, a long expansion, and people have bought a lot of stuff. So <laughs> they may say, you know, I I can wait on that new iPad uh, rather than pay a 10 or 25% premium on it, and that would not be good for the economy. We've already seen yep. business spending stop.
0: Now uh, the consumer is threatened. Exactly. So I uh, will certainly keep an eye on this over the weekend. Bloomberg's Mike McKee, international economics and policy correspondent, And Steve Engel, TV correspondent uh, for Bloomberg in Osaka at the G20. Well, we are in Nashville, Tennessee today. We are broadcasting live from the Commonwealth Financial Network Summit for Women Advisors. Being in Nashville, guess what's an hour and a half away? Lynchburg, Tennessee, the home of the Jack Daniel Distillery. So, of course, we felt like we had to get somebody on to talk to us about Jack Daniels and what's going on in the business. So of course, we got our good friend Chris Fletcher, assistant master distiller uh, of the Jack Daniel Distillery based in Lynchburg, Tennessee. J- Chris, thanks so much for joining us. wonder if you could just tell us about how the market is for bourbon, for the whiskeys that Jack Daniels is famous for.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me on. Really excited to speak with you, Um, and it's a great time to be making whiskey in the United States. Uh, We're enjoying a a whiskey boom, Um, and I think it's um, probably whiskey in the U.S. is as hot right now as it's been at least since probably post-prohibition time.
1: So uh, thank you so much for being with us, Chris. I I do have to say uh, that our our fantastic uh, producer uh, on the technical front gave me a look and told me that I broke his heart because I referred to it as bourbon. What is Tennessee whiskey versus bourbon?
3: Uh, well, don't, don't feel too bad because they're, they're very closely <laughs> <Thank you>. related. <laughs> um, so we're talking, when you refer to these specific types of whiskey, you're still talking within the world of whiskey, right? So bourbon is whiskey. And, of course, Jack Daniels is a Tennessee whiskey, which, of course, is whiskey. Um, and so the, the rules for bourbon state that it has to be made in the United States. You can make it in all 50 states has to be made mostly from corn, at least 51% corn, and it has to always be aged in a new charred oak barrel. And so at Jack Daniels, to be Tennessee whiskey, we follow all of those guidelines. So we do qualify as bourbon, but we have a couple of additional requirements. Number one, it cannot be made outside of the state of Tennessee so it's specific only to this state instead of all 50. And then it has to go through a process we call charcoal mellowing which is a filtration step that softens our whiskey right after distillation so it looks like what you would think moonshine would look like and it slowly seeps through this hard maple charcoal and then we put it into that new charred barrel to age
0: fantastic Chris I'm guessing that you uh, are not new to this uh, business to the distillery business give us a little sense of your history with the company and uh, your family's history with the company
3: yeah well yeah born and raised here in Lynchburg Tennessee Um, grew up about three miles down the street from the distillery and my mom's dad my grandfather uh, was a former master distiller here Um, he worked here from 1957 until 1989 Um, So I've been running around distilleries for a while, uh, since I was a kid, really, with my grandfather, and um, started working here um, at Jack Daniels when I was in college. Um, So I've got about 18 years in the industry officially, and then a lot of time with my grandfather (laughs) before that as well.
1: Okay, but here's the really strange thing. Lynchburg's home county of Moore is a dry county, and yet it is also home to Jack Daniels'
0: (laughs) world-famous
1: Tennessee whiskey. Can you square those two realities with, with, uh, with us?
3: Yeah, it it is a bit unusual. Um, Lynchburg, I guess, can be a bit quirky in some ways, and this is obviously at the top of the list. Um, But we've been in a dry county since Prohibition here in Lynchburg. We are Moore County. It's the second smallest county in the state of Tennessee. Um, Now, prior to Prohibition, it was not a dry county. We had saloons here in town and things like that. But um, since Prohibition began for us, it was 1909, Moore County has been dry, which simply means there are no liquor sales here. So there are no restaurants that can serve you a a glass of whiskey or even a beer for that matter.
0: So, Chris, just give us a sense of how the whiskey business has changed, you know, maybe over the the arc of uh, your grandfather. Um, I know it's probably made the same or similar ways, but how's the business changed?
3: Sure, Um, that's a great question. My grandfather, you know, starting in 1957, Jack Daniels, was really a small, mostly regional brand. it it, it was not nearly as well known as it is today but uh we you know we've had a lot of help with growing our brand of course we make great whiskey here in lynchburg but um you know back in the 50s our brand was adopted by frank sinatra and then you know as you move on into the 60s and 70s with you know countless uh, rock and roll stars and and hollywood you know using jack daniels uh branding as well and different things and During that same time, the rest of the American whiskey category struggled a bit as people turned more towards clear spirits. And um, for for whatever reason, we were fortunate enough here at Jack Daniels to continue to grow. Uh, And things have really, um, over the last now 10 to 15 years have come full circle, American whiskey as a whole is as popular as ever. Uh, And, of course, we're enjoying this rise in popularity just like our other whiskey makers here in the U.S.
1: Chris Fletcher, thank you so much for being with us. Chris Fletcher, Assistant Master Distiller at the Jack Daniel Distillery in Lynchburg, Tennessee.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney.
1: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.